This is an ABC podcast. Well, hello, Lisa Leong here. Being an ABC show, we don't have a marketing budget, so I was wondering, if you're enjoying our episodes and finding them helpful, please tell a friend or a colleague about us, and you can even post us on your socials. Thanks heaps. Love your work. Now, on with the show. I was doing a research project at the University of Michigan with Jane Dutton and Goli Debeba, and we were studying people who clean hospital rooms for a living. And we originally went into that work to try to gather data and understand more about how they experienced the work they did. This is Amy. My name is Amy Resneski, and I'm the Michael H. Jordan Professor of Management at the Yale School of Management at Yale University. Amy's work is foundational in the world of work, and even though it was first published two decades ago, it has come into its own with the rise of hyper-personalisation of work through the pandemic. And what we found was they varied quite a bit in how they experienced this work. There were hospital cleaning staff members who found the work to be extremely meaningful. They really enjoyed the work. Others who really didn't seem to like it so much. But we hit a puzzle when we looked at their responses to questions we had asked about how challenging they thought the work was. And there was a group of cleaning staff members who thought of the work and described the work as very challenging. And another group who described it as not very challenging and not very skilled at all. And and this was not a difference that we could explain by the shift they worked, the kind of unit they worked on, how long they had worked in this job. And the more we dug back into the interviews, the more we realized they were describing really different jobs in terms of the kinds of tasks and relationships and interactions and ways that they thought about what the work was in ways that their managers were completely unaware of. This was happening kind of under the radar. And so that was how this all started, was trying to figure out what is going on here. And what they realised was happening for these workers became the seed of what's now known as job crafting. Thinking about oneself as an active agent in one's own work as opposed to the recipient of a job design and a set of tasks that have been handed to us. Since Amy's research was first published 20 years ago, job crafting has been documented and studied across a broad range of jobs. And in our new world of work, it's something that can help us articulate and design what we want from our work and how to make it meaningful. Hello. I'm Lisa Leong, and in today's episode of This Crafted Working Life, we're diving into the art of job crafting, which Amy defines as... So job crafting just very basically describes or refers to the practice of changing the task or the relational or the cognitive boundaries of a job. So for example, adding tasks to the job, subtracting tasks from the job, changing how one does those tasks, how one approaches those tasks or executes them or maybe when they execute them in the day or in the week, changing the nature and type and amount of interactions one has with various other people in the course of doing the work, again, in a proactive way that helps to shape the kind of experience people have of their own jobs, or changing the cognitive boundaries of the job. So I'll give you an example from the original research we did on the hospital cleaning staff members. We had people, when we asked them, what do you do here, gave us their kind of name, title, serial 
serial number kind of description that their official title as given by the organization. And we had other people who said things like, oh, I'm an ambassador for the hospital. Or in the most extreme case, someone who said, I'm a healer. And we thought, well, okay, could you tell us more about that? And they said, I create sterile spaces in which patients heal. And I do everything I can on their behalf and on their family's behalf to help them heal faster and get well. And saw that as their domain and as their mandate, which really, as you can imagine, changed how they approached the tasks of the job, how they approached the people they encountered in the work and so on. Amy, let's talk about how to job craft. So let's say I've got a a role here and I would like to actively job craft this role. Do you want to take me through the steps? Yeah. So what it involves is going to a stage of looking at what is the job now? Where is it that you're spending your time, your energy, your attention? What are the tasks that you're doing? What are the interactions and relationships that you're involved in and doing the work? So it's kind of an audit, if you will, of like what the job looks like now. And then thinking about what are your values, strengths, and passions as they relate to your working life? What are the things that you care about as sort of end states? What are the things that you think you bring? And what are your passions? What is it that you care most deeply? about. And then to think about where might those values, strengths, and passions be tapped in the kinds of tasks and relationships and interactions you're already engaging in? And how might you reshape some of those tasks? How might you put more time into certain tasks that tap those passions, strengths, and values? Might you be able to delegate or perhaps spend less time or just kind of grind it out at the end of the day or do it first thing in the morning to kind of be done with it? The kinds of things that maybe don't speak so much to your values, strengths, and passions. So by doing this kind of iteratively and thinking about where are the opportunities really? What is it that's truly being paid attention to by the organization? What is it that they expect? Where are you adding value? Where are they expecting that value to be added? There's often a process that happens as people go through this where they realize they have more latitude than they had realized. One of the most powerful things someone ever said after going through this process was, had I done this in my last job, I don't know that I would have left it. Meaning there was perhaps so much more goodness in the experience of that job that could have been ringed out of it, that could have been sort of surfaced in it, that the person never really explored because they just kind of looked at the job as a thing that they were passively receiving. So looking for opportunities for, for example, if you love client meetings and client engagements and what you hate the report writing that happens kind of on the back end of that, <laughs> you know, even if you have responsibilities for how many client meetings you're expected to have and how many reports you're expected to write, can Can you arrange your week or arrange your day so that you are riding a high off of client interactions that can take you through, you know, the gritty work of report writing? Or, you know, you can flip it around if you feel the opposite way about report writing and client time. Um, So even while perhaps within constraints of responsibilities that are being tracked by the organization, even figuring out changes of ordering and emphasis and just how much time you're spending and really need to spend on the things that you might look to minimize can really start to feel both like the job looks more and feels more like something that is meaningful and is enjoyable, but also just the act of using agency over how it is that you're doing this thing that you may have just looked at previously as sort of fixed and not under your own sort of authority or not under your own control, I think can be a pretty powerful experience for people. But what would you say to people who say, well, that's all very good and well, but I have 
no flexibility in my job. I'm told what to do. I'm watched when I do it. What do you say to that, Amy? Yeah. I, so I love this question because one of the things that we realized in this particular context is that the cleaning staff members were forbidden from doing many of the things that they were doing as they crafted their jobs and what they had figured out. And I think, you know, all of the history of work is full of rich examples of this, that even when they knew it could be a fireable offense to do something like, for example, leave their unit and walk a patient's elderly parents all the way through the labyrinth of the hospital out to the parking garage to find their car, they would do it anyway because they felt like it was worth the decreased worry of the patient about their parents finding their way out. And they understood when it was safe to do that and when they could get discovered doing that because they knew kind of who was supervising them, what were they paying attention to, what were they uh, noticing, when were things likely to be noticed. So they could be quite strategic about when they had degrees of freedom to utilize in how they were executing the work. And I think there are all kinds of examples now in the job crafting research literature of people taking what look like very constrained environments and being quite clever about understanding when and where do they have some freedom, not to upend the job completely, right, but perhaps to change how particular tasks are engaged in or in what order they're engaged in. Or, And I think, you know, for everyone, particularly people who felt perhaps they were under constraint, the pandemic and the shift for so many people to having suddenly to work remotely or to work in a hybrid way loosened up a lot of the constraints that had previously been there when they were doing on site work. And so I think even in constrained environments, people can be very creative about finding ways to make the work their own. Love it. Okay, so just to recap, we can craft our jobs in three ways. First, task crafting, changing the tasks you do at work. Second, relational crafting, altering who you interact with at work. And third, cognitive crafting, where you change the way you think about the work you're doing. And think about your values, strengths and passions and where they can be tapped into the kinds of tasks, relationships and interactions you're already engaging in. Amy has another example for us. Let's imagine someone who works at an IT help desk and let's say, you know, they're they're on a rotation where they have to staff the, you know, help desk t- tickets. And so they could be watched very closely and very carefully about, you know, how many tickets are they processing and how many of these tickets that they've processed ever come back again as a repeat issue versus have they taken care of it once and for all. And you could imagine two people who are monitored perhaps quite closely, but one of them who thinks of the job as, you know, essentially being a firefighter, you're trying to kind of, you know, remove problems, save people from their own inability to use the technology that the company's entrusted them with. But you can imagine someone sitting next to them or the next week on the help desk who thinks of their work as being a teacher and helping people understand when they come to the help desk or call the help desk with an issue, why they're running into that issue, why their system always crashes when they launch the following programs at the same time, for example. And so they're doing the same thing, but the way that they're coming at it could feel quite different for them, but obviously also for the people who they're helping. You could imagine over time, the person who sees it as, you know, I'm a firefighter, I'm just trying to kind of knock these things out as fast as I possibly can, would end up cultivating perhaps less rich relationships with their coworkers in the organization than the one who approached it as a teacher, that my job here is to help fix the problem, but to help the person understand why it happened in the first place so that they can better interface with the technology they have to use to do their work. 
Here's another point that, you know, is really maybe the why of job crafting, which is this alignment to ourselves and bringing our whole selves to work, which I think is an offer through this pandemic, as you were talking about as well. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think anytime someone comes into a job and feels as though they are unable to bring who they are into that work that they're, you know, essentially just an automaton executing tasks and moving through a to-do list or a job description, that work becomes alienating. It becomes harder to find satisfaction in that work. It can be harder to feel like there is dignity in that work. But in finding small ways and, you know, the literature is full of examples of people sort of protesting against that way of working by doing things that put their own personal stamp on the work that they're doing, even if they're not allowed to do so. I think being able to bring your values, your strengths, something about who you are, what makes you unique, what you find motivating, what you find interesting, to bring the human side of yourself into the job, even if it's not necessarily invited by the organization. This is where job crafting becomes, as you put it, sort of very agentic, very proactive, makes a transform difference from feeling like you are a drone kind of carrying out a set of preconceived, you know, tasks and so on to you have responsibilities and you have things that the organization is expecting of you and they're expecting you to do it well, but you have latitude in figuring out how do you do that in a way that enables you to feel like you're thriving in that work. And hang tight in just a moment. What is the role of managers here? There's research that even shocked Amy. Amy, has there been any particular industry that surprised you in its use of job crafting? Yeah. I, so one of them is, and perhaps may surprise you too, is the military. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we think of the military as being the most, you know, command and control, top down. There is no room for deviation. But people in those roles have to figure out how to make an objective happen. And while they're very much accountable for that objective, and while they may under certain conditions be told exactly how to do that, many times they're not. And so figuring out what's the right way to get from A to B, or if I need to to have the following kind of impact on my battalion or on my unit, what is the right way to do that? That, you know, some of the some of the examples that I have heard from people doing job crafting work um, out in in practice um, have come from the military. And I think that's surprising. Um, I think, you know, job crafting in environments where you would think there's so much opportunity to just make the job your own also surprises me because it suggests that even in environments where the marginal benefit of this, you would think, would be tiny because people are already kind of imagining and structuring the work for themselves, that there's still a sizable benefit in those kinds of environments, whether those are in tech or in other kinds of industries, again, sort of suggests that there's a difference between being told, figure out what it is that you should be doing, and to what you had said earlier, figuring out who are you in this work and where do you come alive and what does it mean to construct a working life and a set of tasks and relationships that allows you to do that. That's a different invitation. And so that has been another surprise for me. What's the opportunity for managers and leaders, let's say in relation to their team members, Amy? Managers and leaders, in my experience, fall into two camps when it comes to job crafting. They either 
love it. They recognize that their people are doing this, that their teams and their employees are engaged in job crafting. They see it as a source of innovative development and evolution of roles and ways that people carry out the work of the organization. And they seek to figure out how to best support job crafting so that it remains a bottom-up, employee-led, agentic activity as opposed to something that is leader-led and kind of top-down. Mm. The other camp of managers and leaders feel very <laughs> threatened by job crafting and feel like I can't, this is, you know, the inmates would be running, you know, the asylum, as they say, because <laughs> everything would be out of control. There's no way I, I can't allow people to do this. And to that, I say, given all the research that's been done on job crafting, the thing that they're not aware of is that the job crafting's happening anyway. It's just that their employees are smart enough to hide it from them um, and to do it sort of under the radar and to engage in moves that are unlikely to catch the eye of or the notice of that manager or the leader. And to basically try to convince them that this is happening no matter you know your feeling about it or whether you invite it or not. And so given that it's happening anyway, wouldn't you be a more effective leader or a more effective manager by helping to support people within boundaries, right? It, it's, we're not, job crafting is not about people sort of wandering off and doing something that has completely yeah, changing like deciding, jobs. <laughs> you know, rather than being, uh, you know, the company chef, I'd really rather be the guitarist. And so I'm just going to, you know, put the spoon down and pick up the guitar. That's not job crafting. That's, you know, mutiny. And so, you know, in managers and leaders helping to support people with what kinds of resources might they need? What ways can they think about aligning their job crafting with the mission or the goals of the organization, for example, that can all be sort of very helpful to employees and very welcoming of them putting their own stamp on the job that they're doing. And we know that when people have the opportunity to do that, they're more resilient, they stay with the organization longer, they feel more engaged, they feel more energized. And it's hard to find even a control-oriented manager or leader who doesn't want to try to foster that within their teams. And for managers and leaders themselves, they can do their own job crafting as well. Yes, absolutely. So I, one of the things that has really stunned me, I have to say, as a researcher in the work that we've done on this question of looking at what's, what's true for people at different levels or ranks of organizations in their own job crafting is that people who work at the top of their organizations, who we think of those people as having all kinds of latitude. They have, you know, autonomy for days to figure out how they want to execute their work. They could do as much job crafting as they would like. What you realize happens is those same people come up with an idea of what their job is, what the tasks are, what the relationships and interactions are comprised of. And then they treat that just as fixed as someone who's maybe entry level in the organization would treat a job that was handed to them by a manager. And so they become sort of prisoners of their own design even though they have a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom to think about what worked last year or last quarter or for the last project in terms of how they conceived of their job and its design might not be appropriate going forward. And they have the freedom to redefine that, but they tend to treat it surprisingly to me as more fixed than we might think they do. Which takes us to a really important point that it's actually a practice, isn't it? It's a process rather than a one-time event. 
Absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that I've been really struck by in, in my work in this area is that when people talk about what happened as they started to engage in job crafting activities and efforts in, their, in the doing of their jobs, one of the things that happens to an extent that surprises me is that they're crafting kind of, it's almost like a snowball rolling down a hill, like that the (laughs) kinds of changes they were making on the margin brought them in touch with different people, perhaps from different departments. They formed relationships with those people. They started to learn more about the kind of work that they were doing. They were bringing some aspects of that into their own job. And lo and behold, six months or a year or a year and a half later, you know, you can hear in that story kind of an evolution of what your relational landscape at work looks like, what your task landscape at work looks like. This kind of evolution, often leads people into different roles and different job descriptions or getting a different title in the job that they're doing in their organization. So very much to your point, not a once and done kind of check a box. It's a process. It's something that keeping that alive or at least renewing it or revisiting it from time to time, I think is where most of the benefit is likely to lie. Otherwise, you redesign the job or you craft the job and then you just go back to baseline. You just get used to that redesign because you haven't kept it alive. We've talked about the benefits of job crafting. What are some of the limitations that we should be aware of, Amy? I think there are absolutely limitations to job crafting. One of them we talked about earlier, which is, you know, there are jobs where people could die if job crafting is is happening. So you think about high reliability organizations where, you know, we want the pilot to fly the plane the same way according to the checklist every time, right? <laughs> Good point. We want the same thing from, you know, from surgeons, from, you know, certain roles where plant operators, you know, things like this where deviation could be deadly. And I think in those cases it's not that crafting is impossible. I think that crafting can be absolutely done. We see examples of it, but it has to be done carefully and with an understanding of making changes in one's own job in a way that doesn't negatively impact the interdependent others who are working together with you. So part of the limitation you know, that I see is about jobs where deviation could be dangerous. Um, I think another limitation is where interdependence is so high, whether this is in a high reliability kind of organization or not, where interdependence is so high that any deviation I do, any crafting that I do is going to mess up your life because suddenly you're not getting the things that you had expected to get from me in the job. And I think the answer to that is to when you have such high levels of interdependence in an organization or in a team is that you engage the process at a collective level. You get everybody sitting down and talking about what is the work of the team? How do we need to accomplish it? And then what would we change kind of solving for the system of equations as opposed to just doing it individually, I think is is likely to be a more robust way to tackle job crafting. Otherwise, it's a real limitation because there's great research to show that people can get very annoyed by the job crafter sitting next to them if that crafting really changes their own job and you know this other person's job in ways that they didn't ask for and didn't predict and now have to deal with. I mean, I feel like your work on job crafting is enduring. Have you found that the application, particularly in this hybrid work environment with hyper-personalization, that it's really coming into its own? 
I do. I, uh, you know, the, the original work on this, we published now, you know, some 22 years ago, which is, is hard to believe. And <laughs> um, I think in the, in the time since, you absolutely nailed it in, in how you put it, this idea of the personalization of work, which I think was happening before the pandemic hit, where people were thinking about what does it mean to, you know, find myself in my work, to be myself in the work. Add to that a pandemic that has thrust upon so much of the working population real questions about what is this job? Do I want to be doing this job? Is the job worthwhile? What are the tasks of the job? Do I enjoy them? How do I do them when I'm suddenly no longer together with my team or when I'm by myself uh, and working remotely? Suddenly, a lot of job crafting was necessary or possible because we were out from under the watchful gaze of our managers or our leaders or people down the hall sort of who suddenly don't know how it is you're executing the tasks. They just know whether you have or not. And so I think that really raised the question for many more people, what do I want this job to be? There's great recent work that's come out on gig workers by a researcher by the name, uh, last name is Wong. And she shows that for gig workers who work very much outside of organizations, they're not necessarily co-located or present or what have you, that they're more resilient over time if they engage in job crafting and they benefit from forming relationships with each other to help each other get insight into the kinds of crafting they can do to sustain, again, a sense of identity and a sense of meaning in the work that they're doing. Thanks to my guest, Amy Resneski from Yale University, to sound engineer Brendan O'Neill and to producer Zoe Crafty Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leon. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.